As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sports on The Athletic. Now, Matt Slater's away this week. Uh, before he went on holiday, though, we did do a couple of interviews. So you're going to hear two of those. First up, our conversation with Michael Kalt, who was part of the investment group that transformed the Tampa Bay Rays from one of baseball's worst teams to one of the best. Working for the New York Mayor's office, he led the development of the new Yankee Stadium as well. And he now leads consortiums investing in football across Europe. And then on that theme, you're going to hear Matt in conversation with Ipswich Town's American co-owner Brett Johnson and CEO Mark Ashton to hear about their plans for the club following the US-backed takeover. This is the Business of Sport on The Athletic. So let's start then with our interview with Michael Kalt, as well as comparing financial strategies in US and European sport. He discusses how US investors have been seeking out bargains in football drawn by the game's ever-increasing global reach and lower valuations. He also explains how we could soon see less on-field decisions made by head coaches of top European football teams with more direction from analytics departments, as we see in North American sport. It is a fascinating insight. Uh, We began with a very simple question. Why does he invest in sport? You know, look, I think it's like any other uh, investment opportunity. You know, there are there are pockets of places where it's you know financially accretive and there are pockets of places where it's not. And at the end of the day, we're doing it from a business perspective. We think there are places where there are lots of opportunity. I think it varies from place to place and sport to sport. Um, frankly, part of the reason we turned our attention to football in Europe was that we thought that pricing in the United States had become very, very frothy and that there weren't the same degree of opportunities as there were you know, 10, 15 years ago. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a business decision combined with, you know, these these clubs have meaning. You know, the impact that you have from them relative to the size of the business is generally outsized. And uh, in terms of the value you can bring to the, you know, the surrounding communities is is really important and gratifying. Um, and that's certainly a, a major component of it. But, you know, it has to make sense from a business perspective. When you say they have meaning, do you mean within their own communities? Yeah, these are these are, you know, odd businesses or, you know, complex businesses relative to their size, right? They're a combination of a, you know, a retail hospitality business, a media rights business, a community asset. You know, I, there's there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle when it comes to just the commercial side of, of running a sports club, um, particularly, you know, relative to the size. And not just for the smaller clubs of the type that we've invested in Europe, but, you know, even you look at larger clubs, um, you know, in the United States, you know, the larger baseball teams, which seem like, you know, massive behemoths, you know, the Yankees aren't a major employer in New York City. They're not a major revenue business in our local economy, but they get, you know, 10 pages of, you know, they used to get 10 pages of a newspaper devoted to them, but they get outsized, <laughs> you know, coverage and presence of mind. You know, they mean, you know, way more to kind of the collective psyche of a community than, you know, just the size of the business would dictate. And that's, you know, that's gratifying when you when you do this well. So the money that the Yankees make very rarely goes back into New York. Well, I mean, it does from the standpoint of, 
you know, they employ, you know, a ton of people in game day operations at, at you know, at the stadium. They're running, you know, the normal situation, 40, 45,000 people a night through the building, 81 to 90 times a year. You know, that has a massive amount of spillover effect in terms of employment at the building, employment in, in, around the stadium. You know, this has been a controversial issue in the United States in terms of stadium development and the surrounding economics of a community. And, you know, some communities have done it better than others. I mean, I think there are almost indisputable examples of where, you know, a stadium done right from an urban development perspective has sparked, you know, greater growth in the downtown core that probably wouldn't have otherwise happened. I don't know if that's necessarily the case in New York, given where our stadiums tend to be situated. But, you know, they certainly have a massive economic impact, but, you know, they don't have the economic impact that you would think relative to their presence of mind and the amount of discussion and how much they drive sort of the feeling in the community. And, and that's not to pick on the Yankees. I mean, I think, frankly, when you go to smaller communities, it's even a greater degree. You know, I mean, I've seen it in a place like Tampa when the Rays have played well, right? The entire community lights up, right? It's a source of pride. You know, for a business, that's a couple hundred million dollar, you know, revenue business. You know, it's a large business. I'm not, I'm not, downplaying it but it's not you know it's not you know general motors when you're talking about the value being there in european football and maybe not in american teams are you talking about that across the board in american sport whether that be baseball nfl mls nba nhl can you lump them all in together i think generally speaking the pricing in the United States has become very, very frothy relative to the upsized opportunity. I think there are different types of investments. I mean, I think the value in the NFL is it's basically a core plus asset. It's like a you know a financial institution or a pension fund buying a you know class A office building in central London and basically clipping a four or five percent coupon, right? I mean, from that standpoint, the valuations in the NFL make sense. And in the US, there's all sorts of tax reasons as well that kind of make it you know very accretive on a post-tax basis because you get the tax treatment is different than in Europe, so there are, there are a lot of benefits from individuals buying these clubs and taking immediate sort of tax losses from depreciation. I wouldn't view most NHL clubs that way. I think you know there's heavy, heavy pricing for clubs that are you know locked inside of a system that makes it very, very hard for them to kind of on a current returns basis justify what has become the going in pricing on them. And again, you know, it's not true for every club. It's not true for every league. I think, you know, there's a there's a slice of the NHL, you know, the Canadian teams and sort of the original six teams that are located in the U.S., a couple of other examples where there's there's headroom and value to be mined. But in a lot of those Sundown markets, it's just a very, very difficult slog to profitability and to return on investment. It made sense when those clubs are trading at 150 or $200 million valuations, $400 million valuations, five, six, seven, what some of these clubs are looking for, it starts to become... Okay, is the juice really worth the squeeze here? The NBA are also different. I mean, there are different levers that they're trying to pull. Obviously, the, the NBA, to a lesser extent, the NFL, the value is the international modernization, right? And that's that's coming eventually in the NBA. And I think that can justify certainly the return. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just a different proposition than it was 10 years ago when you could look at a club. I mean, you know, the NBA teams 10 years ago traded at, you know, two to $300 million valuations. You know, there probably won't be another NBA team that sells for under a billion dollars. I mean, not under a billion, two, a billion, three. You know, the return you need to justify, you know, four X jump in valuation over ten years is, you know, is quite different. Even if there is international and meteorites and other pockets of value, it's just a much harder play. And the going in check is higher, candidly, right? The risk on it is much greater because you're talking now about putting together two, three, four, five hundred million dollars of equity capital to buy these clubs. Um, it's just a much, much bigger check and a much smaller pool of potential investors who can write that size of a check. So you know, that, that's also a, a pretty significant change in the last 10 years. Michael, it's Matt here. The, the one you didn't mention was MLS. And that's one that often comes up in our conversations on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, particularly because we're, you know, we talk mainly about football. Now, MLS strikes me as a, as a bit of an outlier. I mean, you've mentioned you know, the big four, the big four sports that all have salary caps. They have established markets. They have great brands. They are the best league at that sport in the world. The MLS clearly isn't. And there is a growing appetite for other leagues around the world that American soccer fans can watch very easily. Now, is that the fundamental problem the MLS is always going to have? So I'll try to be diplomatic in my response about this, because we've obviously made our choice about where we would you know, want to direct our football-related investment capital for 
lack of a better term. The discussion about soccer in the United States is, you know, a half century and counting, and it seems like it's always the moment for it to take off. Part of it has been this discussion of, well, Americans won't watch soccer because the pace of play is too slow and there's not enough action. I mean, I've worked for a baseball team for eight years. I grew up a huge baseball fan. You know, I love baseball in my heart. I wouldn't exactly say it's nonstop action either. So I don't really buy that as a, as an excuse. You know, I think the basic problem is Americans don't like watching sports if they're not particularly good at, or if they're not the best in the world. Right. I mean, we just don't like watching stuff that we you know that is not viewed to be the premier product in the world. I think that, you know, MLS has done a great job of basically building out the infrastructure for soccer in the United States, right. In terms of, you know, I think they've done the smart thing of trying to build out markets where, they're not already heavily penetrated with professional sports. So if you look at the places where they've done very, very well, it's in places like Portland, Seattle, after they lost the basketball team, you know, Columbus for a while, Cincinnati seems to be doing quite well, you know, and built out the infrastructure for it. The challenge, I think, is that, as you pointed out, now it's too easy to get content from those. You know, this isn't 20 years ago where the only way to figure out what the Premier League score was to read the newspaper the next day or go to some newsstand that sold, you know, a British newspaper and open it up and get the scores from two days ago, right? It's just, it's too easy to basically be a follower. I mean, I, you know, I have an eight-year-old son. He MLS is non-existent for him. He watches the Premier League, partly because the games are on, on you know, at 7.30 in the morning here, at 10 o'clock in the morning here. And so it's, it's great for young kids. So those windows actually work to the advantage of building, you know, youth sports. You know, again, that's New York. I think, you know, we tend to have a more international population. So his friend cohort is certainly very aware of the Premier League and the top teams in the, you know, in the continental leagues. And, you know, every so often you'll see a kid with like a, you know, NYCFC kid or something like that. But it's pretty unusual. My guess is that would be very different if we lived in Portland. He can follow Man City just as easily as he can follow the Mets. I mean, literally. And so... I think that's going to be a real, real challenge for MLS. And particularly if that challenge was backed against, you know, the valuations where they were five, six, seven years ago, and you're talking about a, you know, 50 or $60 million cost of entry, which still candidly seems a little high given the economics of these clubs. Okay. But when you see, start seeing these clubs trading at two, three, $400 million valuations, you know, it's just, it's hard for me to get my head around. I know it's hard for a lot of people I know in the business to get their heads around. Um, and I think a lot of it historically was justified on the, on the well, you buy in now because the next expansion franchise is going to be worth why, which, you know, I mean, there, there are terms of art for what that feels is like that, and is I won't that, use. But is I mean, that a Ponzi scheme? <laughs> I no comment. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, look, they're running out of, they're running, you can't have, they're not going to have a league no. with 60 clubs. No. Right. So, I mean, you're running out of the ability to do that. I don't want to downplay what they've done. The thing I think that's most amazing about what they've done is they've created infrastructure for soccer in the United States that never existed before. Right. They're not just sticking teams, hiring a bunch of over, you know, over the hill European stars and having them play in football stadiums and hoping that they could get American football stadiums and hoping that you can sustain it. And I mean, that was a model that was just never going to be sustainable in the 70s and the early 80s. So they did the right thing, whether. You know, and I think if the league itself is sustainable, whether it's sustainable to the tune of justifying half billion dollar franchise valuations, I think is a you know is a is a more debatable proposition. Okay, so look, we've established then that that North American sports franchises are very expensive, and that the MLS has some issues, some upside issues. You, as an investor, you've made it really clear that one, you 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 think these assets, these sports teams, are different. They're a different type of asset, if you like. There's more to them. We care more about them. But you want to make money. You've made that clear. You want your assets to appreciate. So yep. these clubs that you are looking at tend to be loss-making, Michael. Why is that? And yep. how are you going to change that? Well, look, I think, you know, for us, we saw three basic pockets of value when we looked at, at, at these clubs. Um, you know, the first is basically, you know, can you buy them when you're underlying your downside risk, meaning that you're not paying full price for a club that is recently promoted or kind of in the top league or is coming off European competition. And now you're paying that price. It's, you know, if you look at the clubs we bought, we bought clubs like Nancy, historically a club that has been in league on bounced back and forth a little bit, but as the infrastructure of a league on team has been kind of mired in, in the second division in France, a really should be a first division club mid table, right? Where we feel like there's headroom there and not a lot of downside risk. We feel like, you know, it has enough local resources where we're not really taking the relegation risk, which, you know, look, we bought the club. They were in, I think, 15th when we closed. That wasn't a complete, you know, they finished in eighth and we feel pretty good that we'll compete 
a promotion next year. But, you know, that, that's the kind of situation we're looking for. You know, same thing with Esbjerg in Denmark. Stand very similar situation, you know, where there's, where there's upside, there's asymmetric upside either from promotion or from European qualification in the smaller league where we think we have a legitimate shot at one of those top, you know, four or five slots. So that, that was one pocket of value. You know, the second is, you, know, you look at a lot of these clubs, certainly the smaller clubs in Europe, and from a commercial side, you know, they're basically run the way that American sports clubs were run 20, 25 years ago, right? In terms of the relationships with sponsors, how they're integrating the sponsors with back with their fans, you know, how they think about ticket pricing, how they think about kind of monetization inside the building in terms of, you know, getting more of, you know, that fan spent to happen within the four walls of the club rather than outside. And, you know, recognizing that it's not an apples to apples comparison, right? The nature of what these clubs are in Europe is far different than what it is in the United States. You know, you have to be far more sensitive about being an overtly commercial enterprise, you know, partly because these clubs weren't started as overtly commercial enterprises, right? There's, you know, the notion of kind of fan ownership of a club in the United States is sort of a great kind of theoretical construct that you trot out, you know, to basically show how we're all into this together when you're raising ticket prices. The notion of that in Europe is a very real thing and you have to be sensitive to that. But even saying all that, we think there are ways to basically deepen that engagement and generate revenue at the same time. The third thing, and what most intrigued us, is the possibility of trading profits, which for us was a massive, massive mover in this. I spent almost a decade with the Tampa Bay Rays in Major League Baseball. And this is a club that during that time, and it's continued still, constantly competes you know, at the highest levels of baseball with a payroll that is one third that of the clubs in its division, usually 40% to a third. And what it does is basically, you know, find ways through analytics or figuring out the ways that you can extract the maximum amount of value from every player on your roster and kind of put together a portfolio that plays above its weight in terms of a wage bill. It's a great system. The problem with it in American sports is that when you create that value, the only way to really monetize it on the player basis is to make like exchanges. So to basically say, I have a player that I've demonstrated is worth a lot. The market will pay way more for him. He's got two or three years or four years or whatever number of years left of club control. I want to monetize that. Your only path to monetization is either to keep that player, hope the club plays better, people show up and you generate more revenue inside the stadium, which is, you know, in the, the bands of the revenue you can generate in the U.S. because it's a franchise system are actually, you know, much narrower, right? Because you're kind of guaranteed more revenue in your upside is less. Or you go out and try to trade that player for younger, more controllable talent and hope that that talent basically does the same thing or one or more of those players does the same thing the guy you just traded. It's great. It's a model that works. The Rays have done it successfully, but there's no real monetary exploitation that comes from that. As opposed to in Europe where you create value and the market comes to you and says, okay, today we're willing to, to pay X for that player. And by the way, the X we pay for that player might be you know, some significant portion of what you paid for the club on an enterprise value in some cases. And we think that system combined with the ability to kind of use analytics to create that, that value, which is how we started looking at this and you know why we're, we partner with PMG, who's done this in a couple of situations before, it's a very similar outlook to us, is so intriguing about this model because we think it provides a vehicle both break even on an operating basis through exploitation of those commercial revenue possibilities and then real accretion and investment through trading profits. And getting better, you know, reinvesting in the club. So you're basically punching above your weight, but you're basically, you know, you're, you're underlining your downside risk even more. You know, every time you trade a player, you reinvest some of the club, but you also kind of, you know, un, you know, you take out some of your downside risk. We're a year plus into this in Belgium and it's gone swimmingly so far. We'll see, you know, the world is fickle. Maybe, uh, maybe next year it will go as well, but so far so good. Oh, so, so many things to pick out of that. I, I suppose from a fan's point of view, your last couple of lines are really important because I was waiting for you to say and then reinvest it back into the club because from a fan's perspective, the trade system might work quite well in, in baseball because you still, you know, if you trade your great player but bring in four or five controllable youngsters who will hopefully deliver at the same talent in a couple of years, that's exciting for a fan. If as an owner in European football, you sell the biggest talent 
and then keep the money and pay out in dividends or whatever it may be, then that as a fan is where you go, oh, hang on a minute, hang on. If you sell our great player, we want that reinvested in in our in our team, basically, as well as more, more so than the club. There's two things on that point. One, I think the system in Europe, provided you're reinvesting those, those proceeds, actually is more immediately gratifying to the fan. Because usually in baseball, when you sell a player – the way you're getting that control is you're selling a major league ready player for someone who one or more players who are currently sitting, you know, anywhere from a year to three years away from producing. So for the fan, they have to think to themselves, okay, I'm lost, losing this guy X who's producing for us today. And I'm gaining someone who may be here in somewhere between 12 and 36 months. Now the Rays have done a great job of that because every time they're selling a player, they're also gaining players immediately from prior trades, right? The reason their, their system is so, is, is so stocked is because they've been doing this consistently, but it's, you know, it, there's no one for one relationship, right? We traded guy X and now we're not really seeing the value. And when that guy who was traded for guy X produces, no one remembers anymore that they, you know, they would trade. They just go on to don't trade the next guy who we're about to lose. So I think it's a, it's actually a tougher sell in, in the United States. Whereas in Europe, you know, you trade a player and you say, okay, look, we, or you, you, you sell a player, we've got this, this, this cash to re, reintroduce and we're going to use it to basically reinforce the squad and make us even better for next year and stabilize. And, you know, my second point is, I think, you know, particularly in the situations that we're walking into um, where, you know, Stent's a great example, right? That club was, you know, you know, a couple of points off of relegation, a couple of weeks off of liquidation last spring. Um, you know, heading into a COVID environment, it wasn't clear if the club was going to survive. You know, we made the, you know, the, the, you know, what they call the Europa League qualifiers in, in Belgium. We faded a little bit at the Anxious Black squad depth. We finished seventh with an exciting young team, lowest wage bill in, in the league. You know, I don't think the fans really care about the fact what our wage bill is. They care about where we finish in the table. And I think, you know, you do that over a period of time. And I think you earn a little bit of, of trust that, Look, what, at the end of the day, what we're doing is stabilizing these clubs, right? You're not going to wake up, you know, one one day and wonder whether or not, you know, your club is being liquidated. A, B, you're going to constantly compete. And that's our goal, right? With with Ustent, for example, you know, we, we plan to consistently compete for those European spots. And so, you know, if we're doing that by churning the roster, um, as long as we, we hold up our end of the bargain, I, I think we'll be fine. Now, you know, Again, we're not taking cash out of the club. We're just shoring up the finances of the club so that we're never in a situation like the club found itself in last year ever again. When you were talking about the reasons for investing in European football, the, the, the upside that you can see, I think you listed sort of three main ones. There's a sort of commercial upside, basically that a lot of European football teams don't really know what they're doing commercially. You know, the upside of promotion, European qualification makes complete sense. And player trading, you know, I get that. I wondered if you also think there is upside on the media right side, that we are on the cusp of, of a next big step change. And this is for all pro sport, really. This applies just as much in the, in the US as it does anywhere else. They're on, basically, we're all talking about streaming, right? That we are about to work out how to monetize that relationship. Do you, do you do you see are we are we on the are we on the verge of something big happening? You're already starting to see it. Certainly, I mean, I think you know you can look at the Premier League as the tip of the spear, right? In terms of how well penetrated it is in the rest of the world, um, certainly here. I mean, you're starting to see this. I mean, you know, at, three years ago, four years ago, I mean, finding you know a Bundesliga match in in you know on you know, yesterday we were tracking a couple of teams in Germany and, you know, literally just go on ESPN. I'm, you know, I'm sitting there in my son's baseball practice, basically watching, you know, the, you know, the, the relegation fight in the Bundesliga. And, you know, that's, that's going to affect the value of those rights, right? That's going to affect the, the, the value of those clubs. So absolutely. I, you know, I, I should have clarified. I think that to me is part of that, you know, is it's a function of a little bit of the commercial opportunity and a function of kind of the, the promotion opportunity of what it means to actually get into that next level. But clearly, I look, and that gets back to what I think MLS's real challenge is, right? Which is that there's, you know, there's an there's an oversaturation of higher quality soccer that is available. And by the way, available throughout the time slots. I mean, I, you know, you can watch almost every league MX game and, and at the same time MLS matches are on. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not FIFA making those rankings, but I think, you know, that league is, you know, appreciably higher ranked than MLS is from yeah. a talent perspective. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think a hundred percent that's the case. Um, and it's definitely part of our, you know, overall thesis, you know, whether it's, 
I think where, you know, it's a little bit of a sliding scale. I think, you know, in France, I think, you know, we're, we're probably the next one, right? Like you're seeing it now with the Bundesliga and La Liga and the Serie A penetration. The obvious next one is going to be Liga. You know, do I think there's going to be a, a environment in the next five, 10 years where there's a massive globalization of, you know, the Belgian Pro League or, you know, the Danish Super League? Probably not. But I mean, but, you know, the rising tide lifts all of those boats, right? Obviously, here in the UK, we, we are aware of, the, of you know, often always gets lumped under the, the money ball banner, which I know is a, a, a tired old cliche, but just for, we'll just use it now just so that everybody understands, you know, and of course, anyone that's seen the film or read the book will be aware that um, Billy Bean, who I know is one of your, one of your, you know, your, your colleagues, your, someone you know, uh, co-investor, um, kind of worked out that walks matter. Walks mattered as much as, as, as hits. Hits were sexy, but just get on base. And that was the sort of error in the market that he spotted. I'm aware about mm-hmm. shifting in defense and, and sort of crazy defensive formations, which I know the Rays have, have sort of, you know, kind of mastered in many ways, you know, putting your shortstop in a sort of unusual place, shifting your outfield, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think in, in England, we can kind of grasp that. I think we're seeing it a little bit with cricket and T20. That's a sport where I think they're learning a hell of a lot from baseball. What are the secrets? What are we missing in football? If you were talk to Paul, and he said this probably to you, you know, numerous times, right? I mean, we are very, very committed to playing, you know, a active, high-pressing system under the view that basically, you know, the more you can make the game about athleticism, the better it is if you're trying to basically make this work in a budget, because the price for athletes is much lower than the price for 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 you know raw skill, right? We're never going to go out there and compete, you know, for someone who's basically, you know, delivering from a set piece, the perfect pass to basically, you know, Kevin De Bruyne is not within our reach, at least not until he's 38 and decides to play in Belgium again, right? And so that is, you know, one of the pieces, right? Which is, can you shift the dynamics in which the match is played to basically more benefit your wage budget. That's really the logic point pressing. Now, it has the other, two other advantages. You know, one is it's a more exciting style of play for the supporters, right? And not just the supporters, for, you know, for the sponsors, right? You, most people would rather go to a match where, the, where it scores 4-2 than 1-0. The other piece of it is it just, you know, it, it primes the pump on the analytics. It gets, you know, it allows us to get more information. You know, the more touches that your players are getting, right, the more, the better your data is becoming. So it actually self-reinforces the model. You know, that, that's sort of, you know, the big piece of it. You know, the challenge of it, candidly, is... It's not just sort of from a business side. I think culturally, football is very different than, than baseball, and it's sort of 20 years behind as well, right? Where this notion of, you know, 20 years ago, look, if you, if you said to an old school baseball manager, there's a 28-year-old kid from MIT who is really versed in analytics, and he's going to basically hand you a binder at the beginning of the series that tells you every single potential pitching matchup, every single hitting matchup, right? And we want you to basically manage off of that within bounds, but, you know, we're telling you what the lineup is tomorrow based on who they're pitching, right? And we're telling you situationally what you should be doing. Most of those old school managers who grew up, you know, playing in the 60s and 70s and started coaching and managing the 80s and 90s would have basically said, no way, tell this kid to get the hell out of my clubhouse, right? There's a couple of clubs that still run that way and still give the managers carte blanche to do what they want to do. They tend not to be very successful. You know, I think that's just, you know, a, a natural evolution that, you know, what Billy put in place, what the Rays put in place, you saw bigger clubs kind of ape that same thing. I mean, geez, I think the Rays quarter of the general managers in Major League Baseball right now were working in the Rays front office during the time I was there. I mean, literally six or seven general managers. People copy success and, and that copying success, I think, happens quicker in American sports because of the franchise system where, you know, the downside of someone leaving or sharing secrets isn't as great because you're not imperiling your club's existence. I think it's, there are upsides and downsides of both systems. I think one of the upsides of the American system is it actually lends itself more to kind of information sharing across clubs because the downside of doing so is less. And it's just not there in football. At least we haven't seen it yet. I mean, you know, you still have this culture of, you know, you work the analytics, but at the end of the day, the manager sets the lineup. And you could basically say to you blue in the face, like, you really need to be playing player X because the matchup's much better. It gives us the best chance of winning. And you'll hear something like, well, you know, he didn't train that hard this week, which is a completely subjective view, right? <laughs> which is rooted on all sorts of cultural BS and what have you, right? And so I get that's what we bought into. And I get that that's the nature of football today. And I get that that will continue to be the case for a long time when you're dealing with managers of the, you know, you know, Klopp and Guardiola and, you know, Pochettino, you know, type ilk. 
But by and large, that's going to change, right? Clubs that basically commit to analytics are going to be committed to analytics all the way through to kind of how the lineups get set and, you know, how training is run and how the medical staff basically preps, preps players for, for match. I mean, all that stuff is coming. And it'll probably come from the, you know, the bigger clubs on down. And it'll probably be slower than it was in the U.S. because of the nature of information sharing. But it's coming. I mean, it's it's definitely coming. And it's largely for the better. What happens to the football manager, the football head coach, as as this comes more and more prevalent? What what happened in baseball as analytics became more and more dominant and prevalent? What happened to, to the baseball manager in that situation? Football is very similar to baseball in one sense. That it's a long, grueling season, right? And so a lot of the job is not just sort of the tactics in game. A lot of the job is basically, you know, managing a traveling circus of, you know, what winds up being 60, 70 personalities once you kind of add all the staff in in baseball. It's a little bit less in, in football in Europe. And through, you know, the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys, right? It's it's really motivating players. It's basically, you know, clearly there's still a massive role for implementing a system, right? Teaching tactics, teaching kind of where you need to be, how you play in space, all those things are still going to massively matter. But, you know, this notion that you kind of can be a manager in an island onto yourself that, you know, you have a technical director who gives you a squad and then basically you tell them to stay out of the way. This is my decision until we hit, you know, until mid-May and then judge me then, which by the way is, you know, I would suppose not, being in this for that long is part of the reason why you see this constant merry-go-round of, you know, you know, if a guy is at a club for more than two years, it's like a, you know, it's like a miracle, it seems like in, in Europe, which is also unusual in the U.S. for teams that are successful, certainly. You know, I think that part of it's got to change, right? It's much, it's going to be much more like organizational dynamics, right? We're all into this together. That doesn't mean that the manager won't get the lion's share of the credit. You know, I was, <laughs> it was funny. I saw my, my father-in-law was over yesterday and he was talking to my son about baseball and he said something to him about the defensive shifting. And he said, you know, oh, yeah, that's Joe Madden started the defensive shifting, who was the manager of the Rays. I love Joe, right? He didn't come up with that, <laughs> right? Like, that was our analytics team that came up with that. But let him get the credit for it. The guy, you know, he won a World Series with the Cubs. He's a great guy. He's a tremendous manager. He's probably the best clubhouse manager in the baseball scene in half a century. He's a, he's a great manager. But you know, no one's going to remember that you know our kids in the front office came up with that. Joe came up with it, which is fine. It's club one, and the club performs. Who cares who gets the credit at the end of the day? The key to it, whatever you take over, whoever you take over, wherever you take over, is how you communicate to the fans. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, these it gets back to the original point. These are, you know, these are at the end of the day, they're community assets, or they're they're certainly viewed as such by your customer base, and that makes them very, very unusable, right? You know, someone who walks into Starbucks and gets a cup of coffee is not, you know, under the impression that they have ownership in Starbucks, right? That they, the rising and fall of it. These clubs, you know, wherever they are in the world, just don't operate under that logic for good reason, right? You're, you're, because the reason they play above their weight is because you're playing directly into the emotions of your fan base, right? You, they've earned the right to feel that way because that's how, you know, your business runs. It runs on that emotional connection. And so you have to be highly sensitive to that. You know, getting back to the question about the investment thesis, I think, you know, that also gets back to, you know, is coming into a club that is perfectly run as the next owner is not a situation I would ever want to be in, right? You want to come into situations where there's headroom and where even if you're making a few mistakes along the way, you're doing it in a way that is, you know, much less ham-handed than, you know, whoever was was preceding you. And so, you know, that that's the basic investment thesis, right? You, you want to have some goodwill built in by saying, look, we may not have all the answers, but we're going to stabilize this and we're going to, you're going to wake up every day knowing your club is going to exist in a year and that you're going to be able to compete. And we're going to communicate to you, you know, as clearly as possible about what our intentions are. And if we do something that might not be popular with the, with the supporters, we're going to, you know, we're going to be open about why we're doing it and why it's, you know, beneficial in the long term. You know, my frame of reference was working for a baseball team in a smallish market in the United States, and that worked very well. Whether that works very well in, you know, in, you know, in Denmark or in, you know, in Belgium, I think it will. But, you know, it's, you know, these the cultures are all different. So you obviously have to, you have to adjust accordingly, depending on, you know, the place that you're in. Um, you know, candidly, it's part of the thing about investing in, 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 in England that's, we found somewhat challenging. Certainly in the championship, right? The expect the level of expectation about what you have to do as a club in the championship, right? Is, you know, we expect you to basically, um, you know, over invest and try to punch a lottery ticket. 
And so it makes it, you know, it makes it very hard to have a real business, a business thesis. And, you know, we've, we've, and it's why to the extent, you know, we've looked at clubs from our side, uh, uh, Paul's our partners, obviously already in Barnsley. So um, this would be us on our own. Um, you know, we tend to look, you know, for that same model one step down. Can we find a club that was relegated into league one that we can get back in the championship and stabilize there? But, you know, it's, you know, there are certain leagues where I think it's just much, much harder. I think arguably the championship is probably the hardest league in the world to execute against this thesis because it's so hyper competitive and you've got eight or 10 clubs every year who are just trying to punch a massive lottery ticket, you know, business strategy be dead. Well, well Michael, you've, you've wandered into my final question really was I was, you, you know, you've mentioned that you were watching German football with an eye on to, you know, who you might buy next. Um, <laughs> and you have mentioned that you looked in league one and now that is probably the first time your name cropped up among sports fans here because you were linked with Wigan. And I know that it was a genuine, a genuine link. You looked hard at Wigan. It didn't happen. I was wondering if you could sort of say why that didn't happen and if you could then maybe give a clue as to the type of club that you would be interested in. I mean, I, I, I wish Wigan happened. I think, you know, one, you know, it's a club that should be a club in the championship. It's got, you know, great infrastructure. Um, we had, you know, tremendous communication with the supporters trust. So I think we're, you know, killing themselves, doing everything possible to keep that team afloat. Um, you know, the local political establishment was heavily invested. Um, you know, candidly, the supporters deserved a lot better than what they got, right? They got handed kind of, you know, the remains of a process that, you know, you know, the, the, the owners of that club should have never been able to own that club to begin with. And then basically they got handed the, the problem. And so in a lot of ways, we saw it as, you know, a perfect, perfect situation for us. We just couldn't get it done with the administrators. And I, you know, I don't want to get into it, but I mean, I think that process has been pretty well documented and it was, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult transaction to execute given kind of the, the state of where the club was in administration. That's unfortunate. And I, you know, I wish all the best to, I don't know anything about the new ownership. I hope they're tremendously successful because that, that those supporters deserve, deserve that club being back in the championship as quickly as possible. Michael, it's been fascinating to talk to you and get your thoughts on a whole variety of things we wish you well hopefully we'll talk again in the future thank you for coming on absolutely thanks for having me guys this episode is supported by season three of fx's welcome to wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So we've heard from Michael Cowell then outlining the attraction of US investment in European football clubs, especially those that have fallen down the pyramid. Now, this is what has happened at Ipswich Town, once a top flight side in England, winning titles with legendary manager Sir Bobby Robson. Now in League One, so two divisions below the top flight, they were taken over by US consortium Game Changer 20 earlier this year. This was a story that our own Matt and Philip Buckingham broke exclusively on The Athletic. So just before the start of this season, Matt caught up with the Ipswich CEO, Mark Ashton, and the American co-owner, Brett Johnson. 
Brett leads the consortium. He's also the chairman of Phoenix Rising, who play in the second tier of US soccer and also has connections with other clubs, both in the States and in Sweden. Matt started by asking Brett what the owners had been up to since taking charge of the club. We coveted this opportunity and, and we're thrilled to close at any, any part of the season. But we recognized there wasn't much that we could do, um, you know, with, I think, uh, close to about a, uh, 10 games or something during, during that window. And, but was pleased to have Paul in seat, if you will. And, and then we're just desperate to try to get this closed. And then most importantly, get, get the adults in the room. And uh, Mark Ashton is, is the personification of that. Brett, have you had a chance to come over at all or much? What's, I mean, I know, you know, travel's a nightmare at the moment. What's, what's, what's. Yeah. It's, I mean, unfortunately it is. I mean, we, we were kind of watching and waiting and, and collectively we want to come over as a group. Um, we, we didn't, you know, want to, we want to try to, to try to time it so that all of us can come over. And, and just at the time that we collectively had to make a decision, uh, the protocols in place just wouldn't allow it. We are now collectively looking at a subsequent date that we can come over for and kind of, kind of sync up calendars. And we, we'll get that on the calendar as soon as we possibly can. We can't wait to go to Portman Road, obviously. But that being said, uh, could not be happier again with the work that Mark and Michael Leary and then, you know, by extension, Paul, and the extended team. So we'll go to you now, Mark. So as, as Brett has mentioned, he's, he's, he's referred to Paul Paul Cook, who is your manager, was appointed towards the end of last season. A great appointment, lots of experience in the EFL, very highly rated. So he's had a chance. You know, he, he, he presided over the last few games of the season. He's had a, he's had a, a full off season. You were working for, for Bristol City. I assume there was a bit of gardening leave. I don't know. Maybe you can explain how. How, is, how have you transitioned from Bristol City to Ipswich Town and what, what have you been up to? No, there wasn't any garden leave. Um, I have a great relationship with, with the owners at Bristol. I undertook probably four to six weeks at notice period. Um, they were very kind and let me reduce that from what it should have been. And on the 1st of June, started at Ipswich Town. And I think we are, you know, just 40 plus days in. Um, and we have 10 new signings in the door. I'm hoping that that will be 11 in the next 48 hours. Um, so that's a signing roughly every four or five days. So as well as getting my feet under the desk, um, we've been working at breakneck speed to, to rebuild the squad. Uh, and I, I have to say, there's just an amazing vibe um, around the community, around the county. People have been so welcoming, and we're just excited to get the opportunity to lead this great club. Well, I was looking at your signings, and you, and you have been busy. I know you've got a lot of experience in the game. Have you have you been through something like this before? Have you, that, that rate, you know, that kind of 40, you knew straight away it was 40 days, you know, the number of signings. Is that usual? Is that typical for you? Yeah, I've been involved with, with revolutions before, and it feels like a revolution. I'd love it to be an evolution, but I think we really benefited by Paul being in the hot seat at the end of last season. Um, it gave him a chance to really look at the squad front line. Um, and he felt we needed a real, real turnaround of players. And we did that. So we've released a lot of players. We've sold a couple of players for, for decent transfer fees and we've reinvested that heavily. So we've taken freeze. We, we've invested wisely into the market, like George Edmondson from Glasgow Rangers, Rakeem Harper from West Bromwich Albion. Real talent. We're not done yet. We're, we're building a team that we want to compete right at the top end of this division. And with the support of Brett and the other investors, we're being allowed to do that. Has the playing budget grown? Uh, yes, it has. But what we have done is, in, in order to build the squad that we've had, we've had to clear a lot of salary base. And, you know, People talk about it's difficult making signings. It's been more difficult in the current climate moving players on, if I'm honest. Uh, we had a number out of contract. We had a number in contract. And we've moved a hell of a lot of players on because we just felt the club needed a new dawn. It needed a rebirth. It needed new, fresh blood. And we wanted people to come to this club who really wanted to come and make an impact, really drive this football club forward and be part of it. And thus far, as I said, 10 in, Hopefully the eleventh on the way. We we slowly getting there. So I just that's really interesting about getting the right type of player as well. Um, what's what's your pitch been to them? Because when I look at League One, it's a it's a stacked division. There are there are ten clubs that shouldn't be there. They're they're, they're championship clubs who are slumming. They're, they're they're just in the wrong division. 
And it's going to be, and it's, it's been like that for the last few seasons, actually. How have you said to players, ambitious players, championship level players, guys, come to Ipswich, because we're not here long. We're going that way. Come, come join us. You have to have a real clear vision and strategy. And you have to sit down with the players and you have to explain that to them. The likes of, you know, if you talk George and Rakeem leaving Glasgow Rangers, leaving West Bromwich Albion, both had championship offers on the table. So did other players that we've signed, but they've chosen to come here because we've explained the journey to them. And they've said, look, we think this club has the ability to go all the way. And that might seem a long way away right now. We're a League One club. We've got to get out of this division. But they've bought in absolutely physically and mentally bought in to what we want to achieve, the values that we set and the behaviours that we expect from our players, both on and off the pitch in our community. And the more we've sat down and talked to people, the more they've bought in. And so far, so good. Delighted with the business we've done. Brett, one of the other, if, if anyone was to sort of kind of glance at a sort of news feed and, you know, what's it, what have Ipswich been up to this summer? Um, there's another name there who's not a footballer, but he's very famous, uh, that sort of jumps out. And I'm wondering if that is more to do with you. And I know, because I know there's a little bit of uh, music in your in your background, in your portfolio. Ed Sheeran, okay? Who, who who brought Ed Sheeran to the party? I would love to take credit for it, but it's uh, it would not be appropriate. And it's certainly not my nature. Um, you know, that that the genesis for that began before, I think, our ownership. Mark, you could probably speak to it better than I can. Um, but I, I, my understanding is that Ed, obviously... He's, I think, Ipswich is along a very competitive list. I think he's Ipswich's officially number one supporter. Uh, but so it's brilliant. But uh, the credit does, it lies elsewhere. That being said, um, could not be happier about it. And I think he splits time between, uh, you know, my hometown of Los Angeles, my adopted hometown of Los Angeles and, and Ipswich. So look forward to some point, you know, seeing him on either side of the pond, if you will. But, but Mark can probably get better background in terms of how exactly it came about it's really funny that, that you say that because I, I spoke to his management this morning and i said to them look that i've had more calls on on the success we've had with with ed's involvement they have on success in signing players but it's not me i can't take credit for this either i think there's a group of people at the football club uh, you know who've worked tirelessly over the last few years uh, and over time they've built a relationship with with ed's management company and i think the, the, the seed of this, this started with Ed. Ed picked up the phone and said, I'd like to get involved with my, my hometown football club. He had a tour coming. He has a tour coming up and he wanted to put, put something on the shirt. Um, but it goes much, much deeper than that. You know, he, he's at the games. We had, he held a TikTok concert here at the stadium recently. And the global attention that's brought to the football club has just been in, incredible. And I hope that we'll be, we'll be able to, to partner with Head and, and see more of him as we move forward. But he's someone who just genuinely loves his hometown football club uh, and wanted to get involved. And I think all the credit really goes down to him and his management team for, for bringing this to life. And we, we're, just, we're just delighted. Excellent. Well, look, hometown partnerships, global presence. It's got me thinking about, Brett, the, you know, the, the rest of your life, if you like, in sport. And, and you know, I... You know, Phoenix Rising. I know is your is your is, is you know your first kind of big venture. You've got you've got a couple other clubs now. I think you're still involved in Tucson, and you've got your one in Rhode Island. So so are we going to see some partnerships there? Is that is that is that sort of a natural progression for for your group for Ipswich? Absolutely. Uh, Mark and I talk about it often. USL um, announced coming out of the board meetings their interests or intention to shift to the international calendar, which. Uh, you know, would obviously make it a lot easier to sync up. I think one of the challenges is that, you know, if you don't have the seasons in sync, you've got players that, you know, either not in shape trying to get up to speed with, you know, North America or vice versa. So I think that'll be transformative. But I, I'm blessed, as I described, I mean, Phoenix Rising, you know, and I think talking about the musical interest, you know, we, we've had uh, Diplo and Pete Wentz from Fall Boy and a lot of musical interest in that. And I think, you know, again, just going back on that last Point. I think Ed's going to take sort of global musicians and sports to a whole nother level. I think he really will start a trend where other artists will start to look at, you know, doing similar things. I think it's incredibly creative for him to announce his tour, if you will, through the front of, 
of Ipswich's uh, shirt. But re- relative to partnership, you know, again, uh, I think for a lot of reasons, we'll see. I would love, and one of the things I intend to do when I hire a coach for Rhode Island, which will be playing in 2023, is I'd love to send that coach over and spend time with Paul and Mark and really, you know, look at the academy and start to see if if they can't choose some players that would slot in very, very well to USL Championship and ideally accelerate their development and kind of be a benefit to Ipswich and obviously be a benefit to to USL for that for that team. But uh, as soon as the Phoenix Rising season ends, we want to send Rick Schantz, our head coach, over. We want to send Bobby, who's our our GM, over and get them some time you know, with Mark and Paul and everyone else. So I, I said differently, there will be countless opportunities for sort of unofficial and official collaboration. And I think it's one of many things that gets me very excited. I've also got an interest with uh, Jordan Gardner in, in Helsinger, and he's done a great job. We've got a, a lot of young players. A 16-year-old kid from Denmark just scored his first goal uh, last week. We've got a couple guys from New Zealand that are playing in the Olympics, or they, they're now out of the Olympics, but – it's really exciting to see. And I think over time, I'd love to kind of look at players like that and see if they can slot in other parts of, of the teams that I've got the benefit of being a part of. These multi-club, multi-sport models and these partnerships are very much, they're not, they're not just the future, it's the present, right? It's happening. It's, 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 it's proven to work. Mark, you're coming out of a, an experience a little bit different. You know, it was, a, it was a multi-sport partnership, I guess, in Bristol, where you had close relationships with the rugby team and the basketball team, right? How, how, how did that work? How did, did, you know, was, was it a benefit? Was it a distraction? Was it, was it neither? It was definitely a benefit. Um, the fortunate thing we, we had at Bristol City is we, we had one owner. I think if, if it had been a multitude of ownership groups, it could have been, been difficult, but you had one owner with a clear vision and a clear set of values. And that was to invest in his community, invest in sport in the city um, which he did with fantastic facilities, both at the stadium and the training ground. You know, we had amazing relationships with, with, with the rugby at Bristol, with the likes of Pat Lamb and the players. So the opportunity, if you like, to share coaching knowledge, share commercial knowledge, joint sell commercial packages. So all the, the executive facilities at Bristol would jointly sold between football and rugby and delivered in a, an outstanding, if you like, multi-use stadium. So... No, 100% it, 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 it worked. It's different here. Brett and I met oh, four or five years ago now at a USL conference. One of the things that stood out was I remember sitting in a, in a workshop with, with Brett uh, very early on. And in, I've been in English football a long time. And one of the things that English football isn't good at is we keep saying, oh, well, we only do it this way. We've always done it this way. We don't change. We're Dickensian at times. But the attitude of Brett and his colleagues in the US was very different. It was very much can do. Why not? Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try this commercially. Let's try that on the pitch. Let's build partnerships. And their whole outlook on building something which was relatively from dust was just in, incredible. And, and, the, and in the midst of that, I think we had a meeting of minds. And, and that's where our friendship and our partnership began. That Their, their attitude to building things properly and professionally is is outstanding. One of the big successes at Bristol was 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 the the training ground, right? You know, the, yeah. So that does beg the question, I guess. What are their plans to improve facilities at Ipswich, and if so, when and how? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, um, I think one of the things that I've used this word locally before is upset. One of the things that's upset me since I, I arrived at the football club is how tired and run down Portman Road is. And when you when you walk around this stadium, it just drips of heritage, quality, history, proper football club, proper football people. You know, I, I'm just I've just walked down to the side of the pitch and Terry Butcher Butcher stood down there. George Burley's there. We you know unfortunately we had the really sad passing of Paul Mariner a few weeks ago. But this this is excuse my 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 black country twang. It's a proper football club. And it needs to be loved, cared for, and the stadium needs to have its infrastructure invested in. And we will do that. Um, and we will do the same at the training ground. We have a good academy. We now need to have a great academy. The catchment area is just incredible. We kick off on Saturday. League One against Morecambe at home we will have 21,000 here. We have 13,000 season ticket holders in League One. Our retail is up 110% on this time last year. You talk about the Ed Sheeran factor. 
you can just feel the energy around around the football club. And I know it's ultimately about results on the pitch, but we want to build infrastructure and we want to make sure this club sits at the heart of its local community. That's good to hear, Brett. And that, that does make me think about what I know, what I've read about your projects in the States, particularly this exciting one in Rhode Island, where, you know, you are very much seeing your clubs as the centre of communities and you are trying, like everybody, to to drive footfall, to make to make the club more than just somewhere you use 25 times a season, right? So 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 have you had a chance to think about how you might do that in Ipswich? Yeah, um, you know, you do it in Ipswich by bringing in individuals like Mark who who recognize just how critical it is to to be engaged with the community. And and I view these as beacons. It's not it, you know, and in particular, it's one thing in North America, but uh, you know, in England, you know, these communities you often live and die by the success of these clubs. I mean, it's been painful for the decade plus that the fans, supporters globally, have kind of been struggling and watching this beautiful asset, uh, you know, punch below its weight class. And so I, I think, but it's not just enough to win. It ha- it has to, you have to find ways to really try to make improvements sort of broadly. Um, and, and it's no easy answer in terms of what that is. And when I look at Phoenix Rising, we've got a lot of kids in our youth programs, and it's been important to see how that's grown. And again, I've started to recognize how USL in particular can be a fantastic league to bring into markets like Rhode Island. And I like the social and economic impact that it has, but no, none of this is kind of for the faint of heart. But you have to you have to bring groups together, you know, the broader ownership group. And now, again, with Mark and Mike and Paul, this Anglo-American partnership. I do think we collectively have the right DNA to kind of look at Ipswich with the appropriate reverence and to say, how do we make it first and foremost, how do we improve the on-pitch performance? That's critical. Like it, you know, that that will always be a critical focus of ours. But then above and beyond that, how do you make sure it resonates not only with the local community, but globally for everyone who cares about the about the team and gets excited about it? And and so it's one of the things we're very focused on, we take a lot of pride with. Um, and, and constantly tweaking. There's no kind of set formula. Um, but I, I love what Mark did at Bristol and the experience he has and the investments that they've made. And I do believe strongly in terms of uh, the training training investment, if you will. I think increasingly I've started to view, I'd love to have a world-class training facility in Rhode Island, one in, one in Phoenix, but obviously one in Ipswich, because I think that's where the players and everyone spends an, an incredible or disproportionate amount of time. And that has to be a real source of pride for not just the team, but obviously for the community as well. I mean, you you, you say it's not for the faint of heart. And that, that that's good. I think that's absolutely good that, you, that you're saying that and you you understand that because, you know, both, you know, Mark, Mark's come out of a club where there was a very wealthy guy that, that has put an awful lot of money into that club. And it's, 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 I know there are Bristol City fans who'd be frustrated that they're not higher up the, the pyramid. And the previous owner at Ipswich wanted that for Ipswich too. It, it's hard. I, I've been now in the sport long enough to recognize you're going to have your ups and downs. I mean, Phoenix Rising owns the longest winning streak in North American history. What people should be aware of is prior to that 20 win run, we had won two games out of nine. We had two wins, two losses, five ties. And, you know, a lot of teams would literally be kind of on the, ed- on the edge, kind of thinking about, you know, t- jumping, if you will, because through nine games, we know we have a great team. We only have two wins. And then we go on a 20-win streak. And so it's important from my perspective. That was an invaluable lesson to kind of just recognize, don't panic. It's, you know, these seasons are long. We're in this for the long game. And uh, you got you got to be able to handle, you know, don't, don't get too excited with the highs and certainly don't get too down on the lows. Kind of level it all out. Keep a little bit, keep putting your right foot after uh, the left and good things will happen. And Mark, your, your job, of course, is to, is to do that is to sort of put the process and then and stick to it and remain calm um and, and kind of you know pay the bills well not pay the bill but make sure the bills are paid yeah and, and i think i think brett's just said that really well I've, I've been in this for 30 years i've had three promotions to the premier league um i understand what building success looks like but we want to build sustainable success and i think that's key You've got to build the foundations. Um, you know, you can see clubs who have investments um, and, you know, spike and do really well very quickly and then crash. 
And that, that happens because you haven't put the building blocks in place. You haven't put the building blocks of the facilities, the infrastructure, the academy, the community in place. We're all in this for the long for the long term. We've all made huge commitments personally and financially with the investors to, to, to this project. And it's going to be a long, long project for us. Um, and in that, we can do it properly. And I think if we do that and we set the right work ethic, the right standards, the right approach, and we will have a plan. And the plan will include the academy, the 23s and the first team. We'll get there. It might take a little bit of time. But we, we, I genuinely believe we will get there. And the fan base here and the size of the football club is more than big enough to carry this right the way through. Great. Well, all the best to you. Uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be following. Um, you know, good luck. And, and Brett, I hope, I hope you don't ever regret it. You know, it's, it's, it's an exciting ride. It's not in my nature. It just isn't. You know, it really is. I, as I say, I kind of pinch myself every day along with my other partners. You know, this is a real blessing. Uh, right, right team, right group. Um, and, and like I said, uh, we've co- we coveted it. This, so this wasn't, you know, this wasn't an accident. And so, but now, now the real fun begins, if you will. And it will, it will be fun. It's got to be. You know, we all spend way too much time in this. You got to, you got to get joy out of it. And so, and that's absolutely what's going on here. And we'll continue to go on here. So, Godspeed for Saturday. And thank you, Matt, for your time. Really, always a pleasure to kind of engage with you whenever we get the opportunity. And I hope when we get over that, we can meet face to face. I'd like that too. All right, take care, guys. Thank you very much. That's it. Thanks to all our guests as ever this week on the Business of Sport podcast. Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. Then I'm back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football podcast. And Matt will be back with us next week for the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.